to Sin City. Get ready for in-depth chat on new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you cinephiles. Only on CMRU.ca and Feel Loud Images. And now, to your host, Nick Manessas. Hello there. Welcome back to the city for our 50th episode ever. And welcome back, Emmanuel. How do you do? I'm doing good. Glad to be here again. Oh, and you've made it just in time. I know I keep repeating myself when I say it's a special day, but this time it really, really is. Because we will be discussing a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. The filmography of... Ari Aster and Emmanuel you've made it just in time for what could be considered the third chapter of a trilogy last year we've discussed the work of Robert Eggers and Jordan Peele two of the three masters of horror and now we'll be discussing what I think is the best of the whole bunch Ari Aster because first I don't even know where to begin because I respect the man if there's his two films, Hereditary and Midsummer, or Midsomar, if you prefer, are two of the most disturbing, frightening films I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, they're very different from the. I think A twenty four. They like um, it's a it's a studio that you know likes having a different style than the usual, and you have the guys like Robert Eggers and Ari Aster. Their films are very different from your traditional horror film, which is good for the better because like their films, in particular Ari Aster, his film is more about the mood and the dread that you know the, that goes with it, and also his cinematic style is just very different from your usual horror films a lot of horror films in america tend to focus on the jump scares and the thrills but every aster is all about making you uncomfortable you know having that environment in the film where it just gives you that dread where you don't want to even be there and be in that environment oh no not at all no and it really helps too that he's also a very nice guy to work with for a guy who makes very thoroughly disturbing films he's a pretty chill dude as well and on top of that yeah you're right a24 they really love doing subversive stories and hereditary would be one of if not the perfect example in modern horror today it completely defies what we've come to expect from this genre by now. Yeah, definitely. So, with Ari Aster, he was more about, you know, the psychological effect that these kinds of stories have on the characters. And in a way that responds, that translates well to the audience. You know, putting them in these uncomfortable situations, but little by little, it gets, it's like it gets more and more scary as the film goes on when you go on a journey with the characters, as they get more and more danger, then it starts becoming like a, a existential thing, which is what Aster, Aster is going for. He said he likes the, the one of the more existential horror films that, that sit with you, you know, not the films that just scare you and then you move on, but films that make you uncomfortable, you know, that linger with you. So that's, I think he succeeded, succeeded in doing that. Oh, he did. He more than succeeded in that for sure, yeah. And we'll be now separately discussing his two latest feature films, 
Hereditary and Midsummer. And what better way to start than Hereditary, of course, because first off, it really surprises me that for Ari Aster and most of the cast members, they don't consider this to be a horror film, but rather a, a family drama, a domestic drama. In fact, Aster pitches the film as, quote, a family drama that slowly curdles into a living nightmare, which I think is a more subtle way to describe this film rather than just your typical horror film or scarefest. Yeah, I think the way Aster he, he approaches his films that it seems like it has to be personal for him for him to work on it because, or you know, you look at his earlier stuff. Um, I think he did a short film that dealt with a similar family drama. I forgot the name, but um, it was when he was a film student. Oh, strange, do you know it? I believe I heard of it. Uh, the strange thing about the Johnsons. Yeah, yeah. Where I think it's a. Uh, like a father and son, they have a really messed up relationship. Oh yeah, they do. And um, so yeah, Astor likes to play with that. And also with Midsummer, he was going through a breakup. So that pro provided the backdrop for the story because he was going through it himself. Right. And I, I think that's good for an artist, you know, to pull from your own experiences. It makes it more authentic when you're, when you're doing the story. Right. And you can, yeah, it helps the writing and, and everything else, yeah. Very true, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, of course, about the whole family drama aspect as well, something I really admire about Hereditary, and which is a subject among controversy with many first-time viewers, is that I really appreciate how it's a slow burn, because most horror films, they tend to usually cut to the chase a lot and you miss out on the story and the pathos in it and hereditary it i love how it's all mostly scenes with family talking it's all about slowly building tension and dread and then it lets all hell break loose by the time we reach the third act that's i think that is where the true horror in hereditary comes the unknown because one of many elements actually we know like when you watch the film you get the feeling something is off something is clearly not right but you just don't know what it is or when it's going to strike yeah yeah that's 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 what separates this film from other mainstream horror films you know i still feel like it dragged the feet a little bit but as we were talking about it, I can kind of see why Aster continued to do that because it's because as a as you because it's a film that invites multiple viewings and also because there's so much to pack into it, like in terms of the machinations of the plot and things like that. But you know he can't he can't give you all at once because it's much better if he gives you little things here and there and then it builds up to something. You know there's a, there's a payoff at the end. And then if you've been paying attention, you can go, oh, of course it's going to go this way. So I can kind of see why he took his time. My only thing was I felt he could have made it a little more entertaining to kind of keep my interest. With Midsummer, that wasn't an issue, but I felt the Red Terry, uh, it was kind of, my attention was kind of not focused on that. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a great film because it's, it doesn't play on traditional tropes. Like it's a, it's definitely a, a, a protege or successor to like film like The Shining, 
Right. You know, yeah. Stanley Kubrick's film The Shining, which it did not rely on jump scares at all, but it was still scary. Exactly. You know, it had a lot of a lot of dread and everything, ten, a lot of tension. Oh yeah, the the atmosphere, yeah, very surreal as well. Something straight out of a David Lynch or even a Dario Argento film. And even when there is nothing big or scary happening, most of it is devoted to what I consider to be the absolute best performance ever in the last decade. And of course, that's Toni Collette. This, this, she delivers the performance of a lifetime. It may sound cliche when I say that, but I really mean it. It's not hard to see why. It... It just, much like with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe in The Lighthouse, it just bothers me how she didn't even get any Oscar recognition for her performance. She nailed it as playing this this troubled woman. Everyone is believable in their, in their performances. And it's interesting to note that Toni Collette She's not a huge fan of horror films. She's mostly into romantic comedies, but when Ari Aster sent her the script, she loved it. She knew this was an opportunity she couldn't let pass. And thank God. Yeah, like, yeah, she really liked the script. Um, yeah, if the script wasn't good, she wouldn't have done it. She would not have done it. Like, that just speaks to Ari Aster's talent, you know, like, because... You needed something to ground this this terrific this horrific story, and what better way to ground it than a family drama? Because that all that automatically draws the audience in because you're seeing the struggles that they're going through, and you kind of want things to go out to go well for them. But then it's like it just goes in a completely bad direction, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is you know, yes. which is, yeah, it wouldn't be a horror film if it if it had gone in a, a good direction, but. But yeah, I mean, although the characters were relatable, I mean, the family drama, I'm sure people can relate to that. And that's a, that was a way in for, I'm assuming the actors and the audience when they're, you know, as they participate in the film. And it was well done. I mean, it was, it's just sad, you know, seeing the disintegration of a family, but that's horror, man. Right, yeah. yeah. And there you go. That's another thing that sets Hereditary miles apart from other horror films because one of the biggest crutches in horror films is that the characters tend to be very unlikable, boring, or uninteresting, that you don't care what happens to them. So the, the horror they're trying to go for is lost. But in Hereditary, you care about these characters. They have their obvious set of problems, but you can see that they really care about each other, which makes what happens to them towards the end very horrifying to watch. In fact, Ari Aster even went on to say that horror works when you are invested in the characters. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's been this trend for years, I think ever since, it's really big in the 90s, but I think even before then probably is that all these bad things happen to characters that you don't like or characters don't care about. And it was kind of accepted because, you know, I think the thinking was if you have these things happening to like people you like, that might that might put people out of the picture. You know, people would, would check out after that. But with Astro he was able to like play on that because it has more impact if you do care for these characters. And a lot of people did. I mean, 
I was invested in the, for the most part I was invested because you know Tony Collette she goes through, her character goes through a lot I mean she loses her daughter and she's struggling as a an artist and things like that and the husband that can only do so much and there you, there's so many struggles there with the son as well and yeah it just makes it more tragic and sad when you know things go down right yeah, yeah like this this is really not an easy viewing experience but it's definitely rewarding because hereditary isn't a fun horror film if you know what i mean you know like a, a scare fest it's a very realistic and i mean very painfully realistic depiction of grief and anguish with dealing the with the death of a child and a family crumbling which reminds me i'd like to talk about you know where this is all headed for and that is of course uh charlie first off that i was just much like with the whole rosebud thing i I'm grateful I wasn't spoiled by that because God that the scene where the turning point of the film where Charlie loses her head that was that is not that's not even scary no that's it's just painful just painful to watch very deeply traumatizing Ugh. Well, yeah, the way it was shot, I mean, it happened, it's like you're actually there when it happens, like, it happens very quick, you know, quick cutting and the, the shots, and then you still, you kind of, even as an audience member, audience member, you're still processing what happened, because I believe uh, her brother was in a car, and he was like, what just happened? And it's like, <laughs> and it happened so quick, and he had to do a double take, and like, and that's just, yeah, it really puts you in the shoes of that of that experience because that was crazy. And then later on, you find out that the cult was behind it and things like that, mm -hmm. which makes it more disturbing, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, God. This movie that's yeah, scary, punches. Right? Yeah. And it's not just that. It wasn't just shocking because we just saw a 13-year-old girl lose her head in a horrific car crash, but because hereditary... If you've seen the trailers and marketing department, the trailers made it look as if Charlie was going to be the focus of the film, or at the very least, yes. the thing that's haunting the family. Well, the movie pulls the rug right from under us because Charlie gets killed off in way too early in the film, and a huge chunk of the movie takes place after she dies. So in a way, they both lied and told us the truth she is the cause of all the things that happen but not in the way we were expecting it yeah and when i was seeing the marketing i thought she was going to be a, a huge have a huge role and then like you watch the film and it's just like wow that you didn't expect that to happen but then in the context of the story you can kind of see why it did happen because you know um in the context of story the the cult they're trying to raise this demon or whatever but They've, had, they've been unsuccessful in the past. And so um, they needed to create this environment. It seems to me they needed to create this environment where her brother would be vulnerable, mm -hmm. where he'd be more receptive to the possession of the demon and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's crazy, man. Right. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, we'll get we'll get on that part, the, the final twist, very later on. But, yeah. At the same time, Millie Shapiro, let's give credit to her because she delivered a pretty chilling performance in the time she had. And this is her first film role ever. And she made us 
really creeped out at the simple noise of uh, of her tongue clucking, you know, the god, the sound design god, and, and oh my god, this is just, uh no, just no, 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 no. Yeah, like, it's, it's, she was good at, like, and it was very subtle, too, like, how she would act. And then, of course, it's all foreshadowing. Like, it's all, like, her seeing the vision of the grandmother, you know, that's that's the spirit in terms of, like, she's starting to see the effects of the spells or whatever they were doing on her. It's opening up this portal or whatever to the, to the demon or whatever. And then, um, and, she, and the dreams she had, the dreams of that she was having, you know, were just, it's all foreshadowing, like, things to come. So that was pretty, that was a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, what they yeah. did with her character. Definitely, yeah, and and also that leads us to yet another iconic scene in the film, which is, of course, the dinner scene, you know, where Annie and Peter are arguing. Ari Aster calls that the, the heart, the emotional centerpiece of the film, because the family has spent most of the movie being numb and distant from one another, and now this is when the familial tensions really break apart. And it's a very also complex conversation too because if you think about it both Annie and Peter bring up very good points and how they were partially responsible for Charlie's death which brings up the question who is it who is mostly at fault in this tragedy you'd say I think it's more of I think they're both at fault because like Mm. Because uh, the brother, he was trying. He did look after his her, his sister, but they were both kind of negligent. They were both kind of. It seemed like, and I think even the father to some extent, they were both negligent of Charlie. I think they didn't know what to do with her because she was such an odd child, you know. And even even when like you look at like what are the brothers' friends were talking about her, her his sister, and they're saying like she's weird, and mm-hmm. you could just get the sense that nobody really knew how to like categorize her she was just weird so he kind of just wrote her off and the family didn't know how to deal with it either but they dealt with it in the way the best way they could you know or at least the mother Annie believes she did the best she could I, I imagine and they just didn't know how to cope with it I mean especially the brother because uh, he was the one driving and like he didn't have enough time for him to process what happened and so the mother called him out on it like Annie called him out on it like you know, just grieve or like just, you know, he didn't want to even process it or he couldn't. And so they both had, like you said, they both had good points. But it was a great scene because you're seeing all the emotions just boil over, you know, which is so relatable as human beings when we see that. When I see that scene, it's just a great scene of the family drama and the dynamics at play. Yeah, and they're all sympathetic. Like, you can see a real family doing that. Mm, Definitely, yeah. And also, to add more element of realism, one thing I want to add about the tragic car crash in the film, because that actually was a very realistic, accurate depiction of an anapolyptic shock, which really made the film even more disturbing as well. And also, I want to give credit to the film's cinematography to Powell Pogorzelski, who would also help Aster in Midsummer, because the cinematography, it really has a very 
claustrophobic feel to it. Notice how many of the shots in the film are framed like one of Annie's miniature houses. They, the miniature houses are very important because they represent just how powerless the Graham family are with their every their actions, their agency being controlled by outside forces, be in this case being payment and the cult. Yeah, there's almost like they're boxed in. You know, and then you see like the subdued lighting in a lot of the scenes. And uh there's one exception when uh when Annie meets that one lady and they're in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. So it gives off this feeling of optimism but then, you know, it's it's short lived. But uh but yeah, there's a lot of hallway shots, like hallway shots that are enclosed and especially seeing when like, um, I like the scene when uh, the brother's coming back home and you see like how distant or how uh, distant he is as a character because he's walking up the steps because he's trying not to wake his mother after it happened. And then like you see the hallway, you see how empty the house is and how like everything seems like it's just boxed in and really apart, not really connected to anything or just distant. And uh, yeah, it's just great shots, man. And um, it really dials on the isolation that family has from the outside world. Right. And then you see it from like the outside shots. And even when he was driving up to the house, like how the house is structured and how the shots are. Yeah, it's very much isolated, which adds on to that feeling of horror. Mm-hmm. You know. It does, indeed it does, yeah. And also, many of the shots in the film are shot from an outsider perspective to give the feeling the family are being watched. It helps, too, that the Graham's house was actually built from scratch on a sound, on a sound stage to, make, to give that impression that you're being stalked by outside malevolent forces as well. In fact, Ari Aster took the idea to build it from scratch because he likes to avoid publicity as well oh that's cool yeah yeah Astor he's yeah he's a very dedicated filmmaker I mean and this is his first major film so it makes sense why he put a lot of effort into it but yeah everything it seemed like everything he was doing enhanced the story cause you know it wouldn't make sense if they were like in a bustling city you know like if it made sense that they were like in the countryside or you know, a little bit away from the city. And, and you can, that's twofold because maybe Annie chose that so it could have more privacy to herself, but then the irony is there's no privacy at all, right? No. You know, because she's under the, due to her grandmother, she's under the auspices of this cult that's, you know, awaiting the arrival of their, you know, demon, uh, demon leader. <laughs> <laughs> and they are the sacrifices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And onto that, what did you think of the the whole reveal? Because I have read some comments uh, that people found the whole reveal to be silly. Just imagine, just the thought that a bunch of ordinary <laughs> family drama, petty squabbles, and all of that happened to be organized by an evil cult. Some found it to be just borderline silly. But what did you think? I thought the ending was scary. I mean, that's what makes it, the ending is what makes the film like, 
high on a level for me. I felt if the ending, if they didn't have that twist, or it was just a traditional horror film, it'd probably be low on my list. But uh, but then again, you have clues from the. There's a lot of clues. Like you watch the first two acts of the film, Ari Aster sets up a lot of that. That was probably going to happen. And uh, I didn't feel that it was. And also, too, thing to keep in mind is that yeah, the cult was behind it, but. A lot of that family drama was due to them, like, because they didn't, they just, because of circumstances, they didn't know, especially the mother, Annie, she didn't know how to navigate that stuff. She had to deal with the stress from her job, and then she had to deal with Charlie, who was a kind of an oddball child, almost like a black sheep. And so you can kind of see why, where it was hard for her to navigate all that. So it seemed to me the cult, yeah, the cult was behind it, but they were just able to take advantage of that. You know, mm-hmm, right. and then it didn't help that her grandmother, you know, was part of this cult and was, you know, trying for years to get the a male host for her her, her lord, the demon. So, <laughs> so I think it's a bit of I don't think the cult was completely in control, but they just took advantage of what was there. Right, right. For, them, for as a factor, I agree too. Yeah, it's mostly. Yeah, I agree. They took advantage of the Grants because they were in a vulnerable spot. And the vulnerable, they're, the family are right where the cult wants them to be. And at the same time, um, it also goes back to another one of the film's themes, which is fate. Because before Charlie dies, remember how Peter is in his class and his teacher is giving a lecture about fate? Because that plays a huge, yes. a huge part in Hereditary because... If the Gra- did the Grams really have a say in this matter, did, could they have avoided all the tragedy at the end? Well, that's obviously a no, but yeah, the fact that they had no say in the matter, it was all organized, staged right from the very beginning. And they were doomed to their fate from the start, and there was really nothing they could have done to escape it. Yeah, that's kind of why the film is called Hereditary, right? Like, it's... You know, the hereditary means um, genetics. You inherited from your, I think it, usually I think it means the mother side, but it, it's inherited from a parent. And, you know, so it's kind of like it's built into you. It's built into your family. You can't really escape it. And then you see the foreshadowing of when Annie was talking about all the male members of her family suffering from some type of illness. That was a great scene because it foreshadowed, you know, what the grandmother was doing as you follow along the movie. And see what's happening to her son, and how he was—he was the next vessel, you know. And uh, so there, there was no way they could have escaped it, because which is sad, but you know that's kind of why it's a horror film, right? You know, like it's yeah, that's why it's called Hereditary, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, and to quote also more from. The title title has a significant meaning because Hereditary is more than just a horror film. It's also, in a way, a subtle social commentary on mental illness, on the potential demons, both literally and figuratively, that we might inherit from our family. Because, as you mentioned, Annie has had a family history of mental illness, and although not exactly confirmed or said word by word, Aster said Annie suffers from uh, DID, which is a dissociative identity disorder, which explains how she sound what well, she sounded very dissociative at the the seance almost when she was possessed or may not be possessed by Charlie. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and it seems like there's a... Astor probably knows this, but... Well, in the old days, and I guess to some extent now, people associate... Religious people associate mental illness with, like, spiritual problems. So, like, maybe you're being... Maybe in your family you have a curse or... And so you have some demonic influence or satanic influence in your family, and that might be explanation for explanation for why you're mentally ill. So I like how the film kind of plays on that. But um, but yeah, mental illness is a serious topic, and you know, and there's a lot of stigma behind it too. And that probably is why Annie was kind of not really wanting to talk about it. She's already a private person, but it seemed like that was the one thing you don't want to talk about, even though it's a it's a self-help group, right? But, you know, those, usually those type of topics reveal a lot about your family. And so it was a great scene because she's, you know, she's pouring, she's kind of pouring her heart out. But yeah, mental illness is a very touchy topic. I mean, even today, I mean, mm. there's still a lot of stigma behind it. Right. You know? Yeah, it's true. And also to add more on the dissociative angle, Annie's disorder, that's another symbolism of the miniature houses, the dollhouses, because they're fake, artificial. And from my perspective, I think Annie, she's using her hobby of building dollhouses as a, a, another form of reality, as a way to like distance herself, to cut herself off from the real world. So she doesn't have to face reality to escape the trauma that she has dealt with in the past and in the present. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing that a lot of artists do in some extent. I mean, you, you want to escape. I mean, yeah, the artists, they're very talented and they do what they do because I want to, but it can also act as an escape. In her case, it was definitely an escape, because, especially after Charlie died. And I love that scene when, um, yeah, it's a good scene. I thought it was a little too on the nose, but the scene where her and her husband argue, and like, it's, <laughs> it's almost like she's inviting the argument because she was, she was creating the accident. Right. And the husband was like, what are you doing? You know, like, I'm doing work. And she was like, I'm doing my job, I'm doing my work. But that's the only way she could, like, cope with it, right? To mm -hmm. kind of control that grief. Yeah, and so he's like, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, it's it's a neutral view of the accident. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we get it, lady, but still pretty fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, it's very fucked up. But she, like, but that's just a great scene because I think as artists, as people, that creative people, yeah, that's what they do. It's... Yeah, you, you like what you're doing, but it can also be an escape. And sometimes you have no other way to cope with it outside, outside of that. And it just adds on to the sadness because, like, she didn't know how to cope with it, man. A lot of people wouldn't. I'm not sure if I could if I could cope with that. Yeah. You're losing a child, man. Exactly, yeah. It's adult fear at its highest, yeah. And at the same time, on more on the connection with the hereditary title, significance known as the pigeon charlie annie and then ellen significance is placed on severed heads because they represent that what is passed down from one to another the source of all mental illness and trauma is in the mind or so to speak all in the head 
Ellen lost her head, Annie lost her head, and Charlie lost her head. Like mother, like daughter. Hence the title, Hereditary. All, well, all headless and dead. Yeah, that's a great cast that you that you have uh, that you caught. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely a maternal, okay, matrilineal nature there because all these women, yeah, the grandmother Annie and Charlie, and they were basically all like the sacrifices if you think about it. Mm-hmm. And then they all had different circumstances. The grandmother was clearly trying to, for her own power or her own whatever, and then the mother the the daughter Annie and the child were just more of like casualties in that that goal which is very disturbing and sad and um but yeah the head is definitely a symbol in the film I mean it's it's crazy and then when you see the ending with Charlie's head with the crowns and everything you're like oh man this is this is crazy (laughs) (laughs) quite the understatement my friend yeah and and before we move on even more, I also want to give more credit to Gabriel Byrne as the husband, Steve, because I feel his performance is very easy to overlook because he spends most of the movie just silent and just reacting to whatever is going on. But he he's the only sane man in the house, really, because he's the one, the only one who refuses to believe any of the supernatural stuff that's happening and he's trying to keep it together to do all he can to support his family even if it's far too late for that yeah i felt he was uh, for the most part uh, i felt his character was just kind of there but i did like the scene where and this was a very sad scene when his son he bring he's bringing his son back from school after he had the caesar mm, right. and he just broke down he just started crying i'm like yes like anybody in that situation would be like i can't take this anymore so that was a great scene right there that's what made him more three-dimensional to me um yeah gabriel Byrne did a good job and you all in this type of stories where you know and you see in a lot of supernatural horror films there's always that one person that doesn't believe what's going on Mm -hmm. and so he kind of played that role which is, you know, you can kind of see that in real life. Like, oh, this, your, your wife or your friend is saying all this stuff is happening. And you're just like, this sounds crazy. Like, what are you talking about? And then, uh, of course, it was it was real, right? <laughs> and he didn't realize until the end when he died. So mm-hmm, Yeah, he did all he could and he got roasted alive for his troubles. Yeah, and it really, right, another good example of visual storytelling, too. We can see throughout the course of the film how the family just keep drifting away are get, keep going off into their small private worlds which keep growing smaller and smaller by the minute and also with steve a, a more ex- a good example of this is he but after charlie dies notice how he and annie they're not sleeping together anymore uh, he's now sleeping in the couch all by himself realizing that his wife well that she's crazy that she's a lost cause now yeah, because like, I think both of them just, and it happens a lot when uh, you lose a child, it can kind of destroy relationships. Even people that are happily married, I mean, it just, because there's no way to cope with that. Because it's kind of like, how do you move past that? How do you stay together when you, when both of you have lost something you invested in, right? Your child. And it was a realistic portrayal of, 
yeah, like you said, they're, them just drifting apart. Because that that's, has destroyed relationships in real life, where you lose a child and you just can't move on from that. Uh, and it just got worse and worse after that. Oh, yeah. As the film goes on. Mm-hmm, yeah, right. And also, it brings up the question that how much, even though we know the Grams were doomed from their fate at the very start, also, one could say that Annie's coping methods are mostly negative because it would have gone in a completely different direction if Annie would have for- forgiven Peter, her son, for something that he had no control over, but instead she let her grief, her anger, control her actions, and she basically walked right into the cult's trap. And by the way, yes, yes, there's no such thing as, well, as far as I know, demonic, satanic cults. Well, that I know of anyway, but there are people out there who hurt others and they will take advantage of any mistake solely for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's like, um, it's like uh, you open yourself. I mean, again, this is kind of like a religious talk, but I know in Christian in Christianity and some other religious circles, certain emotional states can leave you open to like evil influences, mm-hmm. and it feels like this film played on that too. And but then again, it's a horror film. Like you know, you don't expect a great ending, and um, it just made sense that that this tragedy was was them falling into that trap. But at the same time, the cult wasn't, I mean, the cult did cause it, but like there were, they didn't need to be, like I said earlier, they didn't need to like completely control everything because some of the things that helped them were already there in terms of the struggle in the family and things like that. So, yeah. Right, yeah. And she, again, she let her own grief, her anger get the better of her. And she chose to talk to Charlie via a seance, which unknowingly released payment into their lives so yeah she she meddled with something with forces that are beyond her comprehension all in the name of just getting closure over her daughter's death yeah and this brings us up now to what i think fully cements hereditary as the fully disturbing like just damn near everything that happens in the last 20 minutes of the film, right? You know, the minute after Steve burns alive and Annie becomes possessed. That was one of the most stressful, difficult moments I've ever seen in a film. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, and then like, but I like how Aster built up to that. Because, you know, even though, and it shows his talent as a director because, yeah, you, uh, you can be slow paced or, you, you know, there's dread happening, but each, there's clues along the way. There's things happening that, le- that will lead that, you know, there's setups and payoffs in that sense where, like, you know, you look at, like, for example, um, if you look closely at the, where Charlie lost her head. There was a symbol. There's a symbol of the cult on that telephone pole. Mm-hmm, right. So, like, you can kind of p- put two and two together that you know she was meant to be sacrificed right there. That the thing, the accident was meant to happen. 
so this is all the things like that where you can kind of pick up on things and that lead into the final um the final act of the film the final 20 minutes mm-hmm. exactly yeah. and uh it was man that the final 20 minutes uh, it's probably the scariest 20 minutes i've ever seen in a film oh, right there with you buddy yeah when peter is sleeping and it's total darkness you can see annie creeped up in the corner just watching him and and there is no jump scare you'd expect she'd jump out and attack him but no it doesn't lead to anything at least not yet and at the same time given and i I've noticed how after when we get an exterior shot of the house it flashes them to night you can see various cult members around the house waiting for Peter to wake up, which left me wondering, how long has Annie been there? It just, its a, this is a film that it gets worse and disturbing the more you start to think about it too deeply. Yeah, yeah, dude, like, and that's another nice touch too, like, man, it's just great filmmaking, because, yeah, like, people can be focused on what's happening in the, in the foreground or what's happening in front of you, but like the fact that Aster put that in the background, and if you notice it, it's gonna add more to the creepy factor. Which, <laughs> which I mean, when I saw that, I'm like, holy shit! And then, um, yeah, you see like, and then the quick shots of the naked people. Mm. That was just scary, man. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> no, no, because no, no, no. then that that scared me too. Because you're seeing this happening, and then you see this naked old guy in the house, and it's like, holy shit! It's just like. <laughs> <laughs> and then like you see and when I believe when Annie falls out no when I'm sorry when Peter falls out you see more it's like it escalates you're seeing more naked people out there Whoa. in the in the bushes mm. <laughs> pass the bleach please right and the fact that all of them are evil and elderly doesn't really make up for the prettiest titillating sights at all yeah, you're like, oh man, put some clothes on. Like, right. Yeah, like <laughs> you, you know, right? Like, yeah, you you mentioned to me before that it shows just how this cult there, hum detached on a human level, basically, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, it's, and it's the same thing. Midsummer is that is like, uh, and this kind of touches on what you said about the witch. How, like, in that regard, you said, like, you know, taking your clothes off means you're rejecting God and things like that. But here, I think it's just a matter of being one with maybe, I guess, being one with nature, but, like, you know, not. It's more a devotion of. A devotion into that, to the demon or to that service, you know, like. Exposing yourself because if you think about it, like in God's eyes, God, God created us without, without clothes, right? Mm-hmm. And so, it's like you're almost, it's like you're taking one devotion that was meant to be from God and you're directing it to something else. So it's kind of connected to what you said about the witch. But I feel like that's what a cult would do. You know, they would act in a very unusual way you know having no clothes on or wearing all white and because it's just very unusual and that's that's what adds to the horror aspect too it's just not normal for human being human people to do that you know not at all nope not at all and on top of that 
since we're on the subject of religious subtext here, that was actually the hardest part for the filmmakers, actually, because Ari Aster got tired of doing a film about the devil again, so he did some research on the demon payment, which, as you'd imagine, is a very difficult thing to research all about demonology. But, yeah, but payment is actually uh, one of the nine the movie says eight but there are actually nine kings of hell and yeah payman yeah he he basically is a demon from the middle east that walks around the earth and provides you with wealth riches and all types of forbidden knowledge things that god would never say if you worship him in return which doesn't sound like a pretty good deal to me yeah, yeah, he's from the Book of Solomon, I believe. Like Solomon. Yeah, right. Yeah, King King Solomon had King Solomon, and um, and this is pretty crazy. Like, I guess we know because we researched this stuff. But King Solomon, like in the Bible, God God allowed him to have this power over over demons and things like that. He gave him special knowledge. And so, Payman was one of the demons that he had control over, or that he knew about. So it was actually scary that Aster picked an actual demon like <laughs> from lore which is scary it is yeah. very scary man and that and, um, oh sorry I'm you know, yeah and then like uh, i believe i might be wrong but i believe the exorcist used the same demon or the same symbolism which is you know freaking scary right yes um but yeah uh yeah that's what makes it more scary you know you're using it's not something you made up you actually took it from and some people believe in it, you know, like, yeah, I actually took it from lore. So that was crazy. Um, yeah, that makes it more scary to me. Oh, yeah, it was. And also, yeah, and payment is that you know, there are some shots of the film where there's a blue shimmering light. That is the spirit of payment that's moving around freely. And which that blue light, yeah, and also, oh, and yeah, because... Hmm, uh, trying to find something to say, yeah. And also another thing that really cements any horror film as, like, 100% scary is if it has a downer ending, and Hereditary checks that to a T. The entire Graham family is dead, and Peter desperately tries to escape, but he is captured and given up to be possessed by this demon. His entire family is dead, and now he will spend the rest of eternity possessed. While the demon is free to walk around the earth to do as it wishes and pleases. And with all that said, all hail King Paimon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from a cult's perspective. I mean, the, the ending scene was just like, holy crap, you know. As a Christian, I had to, like, I had to be like, oh man, I had to cross myself. Because <laughs> it's scary, man. Like, I guess I'm being superstitious, but, you know, it's... But that's just that's just good horror, man. Was, yeah. You know, like that makes you uncomfortable. And Aster was going for that, so. And yeah. I, I really. That's not something you'll forget. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, and, um, and I, yeah, you're right. That is an image that will stay seared in your brain and will never leave. And I really hope to God that they don't make a sequel to Hereditary because this ending is just perfect, in my opinion. In our opinion, actually, it also the ending where Peter goes to the house to be uh, reborn again to, for his coronation, it doesn't help that the music 
the music sounds very triumphant. It really juxtaposes, contradicts with the mood of the, the scene. It's like a music you would expect to hear from the deepest depths of hell. It's like the devil's finest hour. Yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, and this ties into a, a similarity in his films with Hereditary Midsummer. If you notice, and I'm, we talked about, I talked to this about you before, he's like, it's it's from the perspective, it's this juxtaposition between the catharsis for the main character at the end, but then it's not really cathartic for the audience because it's like, it's it's a downbeat ending, but then on the flip side, it's supposed to be uh, like a culmination of the character's arc. Like, because both uh, Peter and uh, Danny, yes. they become special in the sense that, you know, they're chosen to be the part of the head of this cult or whatever. But then, like, it's through, like, horrific circumstances. Oh, very horrific indeed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, and then the music in Hereditary was just, it was incredible. It was like... It's like a tri- it's like a triumphant thing, but then there's this undercurrent of there's something really wrong with this happening. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, some and yeah, you're right. The music, props to Colin Stetson, the film's composer. He was a saxophonist, and he, the score has this very eerie feeling to it. The walls just keep closing in by the second, and and yeah, the. The ending is a perfect example of soundtrack dissonance, which is something that is like that was seen before in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. It's when music that contradicts the mood of a scene. Yeah, it was perfect for that ending. I mean, yeah, this that's the ending is what elevates the film, the whole film. Like the movie stands on its own. I mean, it's just something he's just not gonna forget. And it's just scary, man. It's just like, it's, it's like Aster is, is pointing a, he has a blinking red warning to all of us, like, beware of cults, almost like. <laughs> no, right? And, uh, yeah. In both his movies. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, the ending also shows that sometimes another person's tragedy can be your victory. And at first you'd think, as we mentioned before, many times in today, you'd think the ending was right the fuck out of nowhere, but if you rewatch it, yeah, there are like lots of clues to it. Like before we even see the call at the third act, we see them at the funeral. And when after Charlie cuts off the bird's head, there's a cult member waving at her. And while Peter is smoking in the house, there is another person watching him smoking from outside. Yeah, and then if you remember, um, well, this is after the reveal that uh, Annie's friend was, you know, was um, hexing her, her son or doing something. And then you see Peter, he's having his episode or whatever outside in the park. And you see Annie's friend shouting at him. Right. But that's part of the ritual. Like, that's part of, yeah, I think if you're watching, you're like, why is she shouting at him? But then that was part of, she was preparing his body, or you know, to be possessed you know mm, yeah, yeah so that's just scary man right and apart from the telephone pole although the film doesn't really explicitly confirm this word by word Ari Aster said the reason why Charlie is so off is because ever since she was a baby Ellen the grandmother she 
tore out Charlie's soul from her body and replaced it with payments. So since Charlie was a baby, until the moment she died, she was a vessel for the Demon King. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, yeah, and that explains the visions. Then when she saw the grandmother and through the fire, I think in like the first 15, 20 minutes, right. out in the field outside the house, explains her dreams, you know. It's all. It's always a spiritual component, you know, like dreams and like visions. Mm-hmm. Right. When I, you know, you hear about that and like possession and like things like that, you know, things that just aren't normal. And that, uh, yeah, it's just great context and foreshadowing. And then the clicking sound, and then I believe she was or what she would draw, like the stuff she would draw too, that mm-hmm. weirded people out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And about that, the drawing scene, you know how there's a sketch in which Peter has his eyes crossed out? Yeah, I remember that. Well, the original ending they were going for was one in which Peter would gouge out his own eyes slowly to, to foreshadow, and the sketch with him with his eyes crossed out was meant to be foreshadowing for this, but it got scrapped because... It was deemed way too disturbing for test audiences, but really, they managed to one-do themselves with that one. <laughs> this whole film was disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> like, dang, these, these, these audiences can stomach a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? and, and also, I remember how um, in the therapy session, Annie said she had a brother who apparently committed suicide, accusing his mother, their mother of trying to put people inside him, which meant... Ellen tried to use her son as a vessel for payment and Annie also said that she didn't want to have kids but her mom pressured her she was hoping if one of them turned out to be a boy it'd be a perfect host yeah exactly exactly and I love the scene when she was kind of great foreshadowing too I love the scene that scene as well because she explained like all her male members of her family how they all had mental illness Mm -hmm. to some extent and it's great because you've seen the effects it has on her, but then also it, for the audience member, you start piecing together, okay, there's a pattern forming here. Like there's something definitely going on here. And then as the film goes on, and then you start seeing all the clues and things like that, then it all adds up together. Like, okay, they're preparing a male host for this demon. Uh, everybody else was failed attempts, but I guess Peter was like the, the, the first successful um, you know, vessel, mm-hmm. or he was a successful one. Oh yeah, very successful indeed. And also, when Charlie clocks her tongue, it's actually an indicator that payment is there—a payment indicator, if you will. And also, <laughs> and also, uh, that, and that's why Charlie she acts confused because remember, it's payment, not Charlie. Because payment is confused; it's livid. It's saying it's pissed because it's in the wrong body, and we know Payman loves the dudes. Loves what? Loves the dudes because he wants an email host. <laughs> yeah, that, that was freaking weird, man. It has a has to have a male host. That's that's crazy. And all, you know, like I said, all the other males were failed attempts. I guess because maybe it was genetics or the spells didn't work or whatever. But then it's like, um, for some reason, I work with Peter. And so, yeah, man, it's just, it, it made sense because in the concept of the story, we're like, 
you know, having a downer ending is a sense that evil wins out, you know, like, I guess that's what separates this film from other horror films. I mean, a lot of horror films, the bad guys do win, but then this one in particular is just on a whole other level. A very disturbing, mentally scarring level indeed, yes. And now, we'll be moving on from the darkness into the light. Not really. With Midsommar. Now, Midsommar and Hereditary are, you could say, opposites of one another, basically. Both... They're, they're both dark films, but Hereditary is a f- it's more, if you look at the two of them together, Hereditary is more obviously a horror film because it mostly takes place at night in dark shadows. But Midsommar is one, as you know, that takes place in daylight with lots of bright colors to distract us from the horror. Yeah, I think that was a brilliant choice. I mean, it's... I was just watching the director's cut uh, last night with some friends, and yeah, man, it was just, I saw some new scenes, which is, it just did add context, but overall, I was reminded of how genius that was. I mean, no horror film is, outside of The Wicker Man, which had, which had similar territory, I mean, in terms of the plot and narrative, this one was just, I mean, Having horror in a daylight, that's incredible. It's <laughs> like, very hard to achieve as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, because uh, it's like, but that adds on to like the cult insidiousness, right? Like everything was secret. Like what they were doing had to be secret because everything was in daylight. So they can't really show what they're doing. But then as the movie goes on, you, you, you know, you go behind the closed doors and you start seeing things. You're like, holy shit. Like this is... <laughs> It's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> no, quite the understatement. Yeah, and and yeah, but let's talk about the cinematography in Midsummer. Like, oh my God, this is one of the most visually stunning, beautiful horror films I've ever seen. And kudos again to Pawel Pogorzewski, who is the cinematographer, with the vibrant shots of the Swedish landscape and the nice camera tricks. I love that camera trick when Danny walks from the house and when she goes to the bathroom, she's already in the plane. The cinematography, its it really immerses the audience. It's like we're getting lost in this madhouse. Yeah, and don't and don't forget the the pastel uh, color palette, the Easter, the autumn, the spring color palette, mm-hmm. and how symmetrical the shots were, especially when the when the cult members were having their feast outside and like you know, and then everything was symmetrical and it was almost like a Kubrick type of symmetry, and you know Kubrick was very symmetrical oh, yeah. in his, or a Wes Anderson in his shots. Yeah, yeah, definitely Wes Anderson. But I, I would think it's more of a Kubrick thing. Because, um, yeah, the color scheme was pretty amazing. I love that one shot where, um, it's a beautiful shot when uh, Danny is outside with everybody. And, like, on one side of her, you see the cult members. On the other side, you see the her friends. And she's in the middle. That was a beautiful shot. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, well, it's almost like, um, you know, like two worlds that she's navigating through. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And and much like the house also for the Grams and the Hereditary, it also helps that the the pastures in the the Horgoth as the cult lives, it was all built from scratch. The production values 
are just get top marks. And it's also a, a step up from Hereditary, especially since the budget now was much larger than his first feature film for Ari Aster. Yeah, it's just amazing what he did with so little money, right? I mean, yeah, you know, you know, these films are kind of niche, these type of movies, but they're still successful for their market. And yeah, it's just amazing what he, what you can do with, with the with the budget, you know. And he just went all out. Uh, yeah, it's just amazing. And he did a lot of research into the myths and the folklores and things like that. And yeah, it's just amazing. It's a it's not your mainstream horror film, but it's it's leap it leaves it's a huge leaps and bounds ahead of what's out there anyway. You know how it's directed and told, and yeah, it's really good. Right, yeah, and also the thing I love the amount of detail put into this film as well. Even the co- he put a lot of hard work too, and not just in the production design, but also the the costumes. Even very. He did a lot of research on Swedish folklore too, and yeah, I wouldn't call Midsummer scary as one that'll give me sleepless nights. Like the right word would be disturbing. It's not. It's more like what the fuck did I just watch? Because do fair warning, do not watch this movie if you have a very weak stomach. Because yeah, the first time I watched it, I had to look away. Like the part when. Uh... Christian finds his son, not his son, his friend buried in the ground. That was the part where I had to check out. I'd be like, oh my God, I, I, I was about to pass out. And like, because you, you don't expect that. Like, it, it's just the way he sets up the film, like how you see, how he reveals visual information, how he reveals what you see in the frame, you know, and that dread that he uses. That was the part where I was like, oh my God, this is, this is insane. Um, that scared the crap out of me. And then like that part when after Christian leaves having sex with that girl, like the whole final 30 minutes like that, just, it's just like with hereditary, it's, it's just scares the hell out of you, man. Like, <laughs> cause everything is like, everything unravels everything unravels right yeah and that's another pattern I noticed in both Astor's films how he uses nudity as a way to invoke fear from the audience and the final minutes after the whole fertility ritual yeah that was really crazy given that it's essentially rape since he has no idea what he's doing he's he's high he's on drugs and also, Jack Renard, the actor who plays Christian, asked Ari Aster to make his character nude to, I was a way to invert the whole, you know, cliche how most women in film usually are subjected to sexual violence and humiliation. So why not try that with a male character this time around? Oh yeah, that was a brilliant way. Uh, that was a brilliant um, touch. Yeah, I read that too. That he chose to do that, and I think Oscar was going to do that anyway. Because Oscar is all. You look at his both his films. He subverted a lot of the tropes. I mean, a lot, a lot of, but not for the sake of just subverting it, because it you know helps the story. Um. So yeah, that was a great. It unnerves you because it's like seeing somebody naked. You know. Unless you're like at a nudist beach, everywhere else you're gonna be vulnerable. You look vulnerable because like you're not wearing any clothes. You know, I mean, if someone shoots you, I mean, that's it. You know, you don't have freaking bulletproof vest or something. You just you're with the elements. <laughs> you're exposed. So, yeah. 
yeah, you're just exposed. And so that adds on to the vulnerability. And so, yeah, it's just, it was just that part, like I said, that part where you left the house until the end of the film, that just scared the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> And also, another thing about Hereditary too is that. I mean, Midsummer is that both, it also features similar themes of grief and anguish and toxic relationships, which we can see with the relationship between Danny and Christian. And by the way, kudos to Florence Pog, who, again, this is one of the greatest performances of the last decade. Again, it's pretty laughable. She didn't get any Oscar recognition for her role in this, because as divisive oh, as oh, it Florence. Was, Yeah. It's Florence Pugh. I think you said Florence Pugh or... Oh, right. Oh, did I mispronounce it? Oh, oh, Florence Pugh. Right, sorry. Uh, Right. Yeah, as divisive as Danny is as a character, Florence killed it, nailed it out of the park. We see just how emotionally broken Danny becomes throughout the course of this really, really dark story. Yeah, there was criticism. I mean, I kind of had some because I felt like she was kind of a passive character. Uh, for a lot of the movies, she felt passive to me. But then people got up to, you know, she's a victim of circumstances, right? But as the film goes on, she kind of she does find form her identity, even though it's with a group of people that you wouldn't want to, you shouldn't be associated with, right? So she found affirmation in a cult, which is tragic, right? That's kind of why it's a horror film, right? Um, but she does stand her own. She does. It's not like she's she's a, still a relatable character in terms of the her dialogue and her characterization. I just felt that she should have been more active as a character. But other than that, Florence Pugh did give a great performance because at the end of the day, she's playing a damaged character. Mm-hmm. And it's, it seems like Ari Aster likes using damaged characters anyway. Mm-hmm. But I can understand why, you know, some female viewers or some people are like, they're like they don't really care about Danny or they feel like, uh, you know, they're upset. They, she, they find her annoying because <laughs> like, well, she just pouts all the time and well, things like that. That's pretty self-explanatory given how much she's lost. And I, from myself rooting against against her her boyfriend and her friends because honestly this entire film yes. I've been rooting for the cult which we can all be forgiven for rooting <laughs> for them given how Danny's friends her boyfriend of all people he they just acted just very mean just insensitive to her plight and Christian oh my god Christian he is the worst boyfriend ever he gaslights her he flat out ignores her doesn't even support her and on top of that it's pretty low compared to the other things but he even forgets her birthday yeah he had this half-hearted uh oh here's your birthday he had like a bread and uh a candle on it like happy birthday he didn't even sing it well he's like it's kind of everything he did was kind of half-assed like oh man okay i I, I, I guess i have to make it up to her so happy birthday and he didn't even finish it he's like yeah i'm sorry i forgot and he's like fuck you dude (laughs) yeah and danny was like just she's just over it like just don't worry about it whatever but yeah and also if you notice i'm sure you noticed this 
Christian is also a jerk to his friends, mm-hmm. especially uh, Josh. And so you can kind of see his interactions with them. And, you know, he, he wanted to do his thesis on that, on Horga, which Josh wanted to do too. So he just wasn't a very likable character. Mm-hmm. But it kind of made sense for the story, though. So, yeah, man, he was a terrible person. Oh, yeah. And... And so were, and his friends were also just as awful to Danny as well. We got uh, his other yes. friend Mark. You know, Mark, that the idiot who just can't stop thinking about sex. And then Josh. I did notice this at first, but notice how he is very dismissive of Danny. He doesn't pay attention to her unless she speaks to him first. And right at the scene where Danny meets Palais, right before she goes to the plane. When she arrives there, Josh immediately leaves her as if she, he, she's just an inconvenience. Yeah, because I think that's why Midsummer is didn't sit well with most audiences. I think many found the characters to be just too plain and unlikable. Well, there's twofold because, and this is kind of different from Hereditary. Because if you think about it, all those characters died, right? So if they were likable characters, people might have a backlash to be like, oh, I like these guys, and then, but you killed them all. So I can kind of see why they were unlikable. Because you like, if you, when they die, you're like, oh, yeah, you got what you deserve, right? <laughs> it's that feeling. And then, uh, and then to your point about Josh's reaction to Danny, yeah, if you notice in the scene, when they're all, when they're all together, I think Pele was outside the room. I think it was him, Josh, and Mark. They're all. Josh and Mark was telling them like, "You gotta break up with her," you know. Like they're always, like they're all they're all conspiring or like finding a way to get rid of her. And so that kind of can explain their actions toward her, which cements the fact that you know they're all jerks. They're all terrible people, self-interested guys, right? And um, but it's just funny. You know, it's ironic how Pele is the only one that cared for her, but then at the same time, he's part of the cult too, so. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And really, good props too to another thing about the cinematography as well. It really helps enhance the madness too, because this is one of the most realistic, accurate portrayals of a bad trip. Uh, it really feel the movie feels psychedelic. It feels like we are also being gaslit by the cult. Yeah, yeah. I was watching the other day, and a friend of mine was saying, a roommate of mine was saying, like, it's like if you look closely, the trees are breathing. Like the trees are, because like after the, um, yeah, I think after Danny had the, Danny or Christian had the drink, and you start seeing like on the screen all these, um, it's like the vision is being warped. You're seeing like these little spots everywhere and things like that. Right. And so it's just like. The audience is on that trip with them. Like everything just seems unsurreal and and not exactly normal. Mm, yeah, very very trippy as hell. Yeah, and that also something has been an ongoing course of debate between any between me and Matt, or just about anyone who's seen Midsummer is the ending, like. My God, this is a very debatable ending because personally, I was 
I rooted for Danny. I thought, you know, she like she did it. She finally got rid of all the toxic influences in her life and she's now found her one true family. Yeah, yeah, that's what the film was going for. She was searching for it's kind of similar to The Witch now I think about it cuz in The Witch Tom was looking for affirmation and she just found it in the wrong um wrong person it's kind of the same thing with danny like she was looking for affirmation no i don't think she was consciously looking for affirmation but she found it she she realized later she was looking for it and she found it in this cult where she was actually somebody right like it just it juxtaposes you know how the guys are treating her to how the cult was treating her the cult put her on a pedestal the cult made her a star right she was made queen so she found that affirmation with them and you know it's just and the first order of business was killing her you know her boyfriend and mm. sure she was scared and then she smiled so it was like she completely it was a happening for her right. exactly <laughs> yeah because yeah much like with these kinds of endings like the same for hereditary and also to, to with whiplash for example is that it's very hard to tell if it's a downer ending when there's happy music playing in the background yeah yeah again it's the same thing with hereditary like it's triumphant music but then there's always an undercurrent of something that's really wrong happening here uh, and that's really that's what good horror should do where you have a juxtaposition of two different view, feelings right and um, yeah it's just insane it's like on one side you feel like oh Christian kind of got what he deserved but then you feel like wow she just completely lost unhinged like she's devoted herself to this evil cult right and she's becoming one of them exactly yeah basically and also, as we know, Aster called Midsummer a toxic catharsis because from a storytelling perspective, it makes sense because Danny, at this point in the film, she's just a complete emotional mess. And yeah, as we know, Christian is the worst boyfriend ever, but also keep in mind that she is, whether you just think he deserves it or not, also let's keep in mind that she is sentencing a disabled rape victim to a gruesome death. And Aster said that it should not be seen as a you-go-girl moment because it's still pretty... It's, it's fucked up, really, at the same time. And, and I like how the movie isn't asking us to agree with it because, well, you could argue... Uh, uh, that um, Mark and, and Josh deserve what they got. Ari Aster said that the cult will still kill you regardless of your behavior. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... Well, uh, yeah, but I guess Danny did have a choice. Like, she could have chose somebody else instead of Christian, but... Um, but, yeah, overall, yeah, I, I agree with Aster. I think he's right. Well, it's his film, so, of course, he's right. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, yeah, I mean, the cult, it, that man, that's what adds to the horror element because it's like, yeah, they seem nice and very welcoming, but, you know, they, they have an ulterior motive. Like, they could have been the nicest people on the planet. And it's, I mean, the Mark and Josh and the visitors could have been the nicest people on the planet. 
but hey, they need some sacrifices, so it doesn't matter, man. Like, we gotta complete this ritual. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. And also, let's keep in mind that at the same time, they've killed innocent people. Uh, Simon and his girlfriend Connie, whose crime was basically wanting to leave, because I think that's what makes the Horga very unique types of horror villains, not just evil for the sake of being evil, because they may they're. That what Ari Aster said, they're not, what they're doing isn't an act, like, they're really that nice, they're really friendly, but at the end of the day, they're still a murderous cult, so I think that's why I find them to be very unique horror movie villains. Yeah, and then, in a way, there's realism aspect, too, I mean, every, every cult is like that, I mean, look at, um, I'm sure you go down history, I mean, you look at Scientology, you look at uh, Jim Jones's group. Uh, yeah, you look at all cult groups. There's always a charismatic leader, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. That's very welcoming. And then you meet the people. They seem like normal people. Like, oh, they join us. We can help you with all this. And then, of course, after you're in it for so long, you start seeing the underbelly. You start seeing, like, they're doing all type of crazy stuff. And it's like, but you're already in. And it, you can't get out. You're, you know? Wow. And so... That's kind of a realistic portrayal, you know, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the if the horror were these people that are automatically mean or, you know, nobody would join them, right? Or nobody would. Yeah. So it's kind of, um, yeah, they're being authentic, but it's still at the end of the day, that's how they hook you in. That's how they get you. You know, they act kind and this and that. And then when you're in it for so long, then you're like, holy shit, what did I get myself into? Exactly, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, they're brainwashing you, that's for sure, yeah. And the Manson, the Manson family were really good at this as well. Not surprising since Midsummer took some inspiration from the Manson family, given how it was originally supposed to be a slasher film, also. Yeah, yeah, uh, Astor originally... I think the studio wanted him to do like a traditional slasher film or he had an idea for that, but he chose to do something different. I think he wanted to do like a B horror film, but he decided to do something different, which I think is good. It's good that he did something different. You know, you have to, especially with this type of movie, this genre and these type of movies, you got to stay fresh to, you know, to to help your credibility, but also, you know, help the audience too see something different. Right, yeah. And um, yeah, so it's good that he, he went this route. He did, yeah, definitely, yeah. And, and also, even if Danny does find a happy life with the Horga, remember what happens when you reach the age of 71. Because that scene, oh yeah. lord, that's like the turning point of the film for me. The Atestupa, the ritualistic suicide god we see a woman's face literally peel off and the movie does not hold back both hereditary and midsummer they don't hold back from showing very graphic imagery stuff that we don't expect to see but it's going to be trapped in our brain for a long 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 time yeah yeah i was like i said i was watching the other day and I always close my eyes when I, when, a, when a guy falls because I don't want to see that image. don't want to be reminded of it. And then especially when I got the mallet because he was still alive and they got the mallet to, to finish him off, like three people used it. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to look at that. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's in slow motion too, so like That's you're seeing the blood and guts. <laughs> right. You're seeing the blood and guts and stuff. Yeah. I mean the goriness of it. Right, and also it really helps that none of the film's effects were digital; they were all done practically. Yeah, you can definitely see it when they were putting the bodies away. And you saw the close-ups of the, the open head and everything. That was completely prosthetic. That was completely done practically, which is amazing. Um, there's a lot of great things you could do with practical effects. It is a, kind of a dying art, but there's still people out there that can, you know, bring their A-game and do it well. And, yeah, that's just good filmmaking. Definitely. Because that draws you in more like oh shit that's an actual open head it's crazy and and even more disturbing is the fact how the entire horror got there completely chill about it like this is everyday business for them then again they are they are pagans and their their views and beliefs are very unique from ours very out of touch would be the right word to say I believe Well, that's the definition of a cult. I mean, they have unusual practices and, you know, have their own moral system, which is very different from other walks of life, from Christianity, from Hinduism, from other religions. And it's just, yeah, it seemed like the whole film was like a meditation on how you can be brainwashed, basically. Because, yeah, you have the initial rejection, you know, like of Danny, of the other people when the a two-spot happened and then slowly you're starting because Danny especially Danny she starts becoming more if you notice yeah she's still emotional but she's in a way she's becoming brainwashed too because she's becoming dull to like she's becoming dull to the horrific things that they're doing and then at the end it's clear that she's brainwashed oh, yeah. when she smiles mm-hmm. yeah. it's just you're seeing the this isn't the chat the It's a whole brainwashing session, the whole film, basically, of how you'd be indoctrinated into that cult, basically. Right, and the, this, her smile at the end, that is one image that will stay with you among many other ones. The, the script describes the final shot of Danny smiling as she is overjoyed. She's having this feeling, a very insane smile, a feeling that is unknown but belongs in the deepest depths of hell is how the script describes it is like she's just gone off the deep end her it's a an insane twisted smile the happy music in the background really doesn't make it all better yeah yeah she becomes unhinged she becomes she breaks from traditional uh, morality traditional virtues you know anybody with a conscience would be like this is terrible and then like but it's like the it's like the cult removes those inhibitions and you become something else the more the more demonic person almost the more uh self ego like do you know the pre- the pleasure principle and psychology is like they 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 uh you become more of that they, you know you become more of that or that person where you're you're more susceptible to your primal instincts in a way mm. that's, what, that's what I got from it oh. well, how that's my interpretation well how interesting yeah. Yeah. 
and nice and yeah and above all else another thing that really helped midsummer stand out to me is that the fact it's daylight horror because you know daylight horror is something that's very hard to achieve because usually most horror films take place in the night and daylight is usually when the characters should be safe when you want when they usually make it out of the horror but midsummer is different i've never seen a horror film like this before it helps to i've seen it way before the wicker man because all the horrible stuff that happens like the gore the graphic imagery it really contrasts with the light colorful tone yeah the only other film that did it well was the wicker man i still need to see it but that dealt with similar um territory where this guy i believe he was a a christian he was a christian and you know he was in this out of he was out of touch with all these pagan people and you know and then there's another film where but it was kind of separate because you know at the ending is where he becomes sacrificed but then in, in midsummer is where the main character becomes like the head basically the head of the cult <clears throat> so yeah it's not a thing that's been done a lot but i think i think after this film you probably couldn't do it anymore because i think these two films kind of perfected that the whole daylight horror thing mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i don't see how anyone could replicate this or <laughs> yeah and yeah and also yeah like you mentioned before much like with hereditary midsummer is not your standard typical horror film it's a slow burner even more so than hereditary but every minute is so worth it even if there's not a scary moment happening you get to enjoy the acting and even the gorgeous cinematography which i just can't get enough of the it's just beautiful again one of the most beautiful horror films right up there with the shining and suspiria oh yeah definitely he probably who knows maybe Aster took inspiration from that uh, I was just reading up. Uh, he took a lot of inspirations from more obscure filmmakers, um, but and painters in his in terms of like how the the look of the film. But uh, but yeah, this film he he definitely wanted to do something different. Wanted to do something that that people haven't seen before, mm. and yeah. he succeeded that to a T. Definitely. And, yeah, it's really one of the biggest award snubs as well, because it may sound a bit minuscule compared to everything, but, yeah, the Academy doesn't really give that much recognition to horror films. The last time, of course, being Get Out, but Midsummer, I think, has more than proven. Ari Aster is a true horror auteur, much like with Peel and Eggers. He's made only two films, but... The quality is unmatched. Yeah, he's he's definitely his own. He's all, like I think I said in uh, Jordan Peele or another episode. They're all all tour directors. Like they're all like, and and I know that gets thrown around a lot, but a tour just means like they're talented, but also have a very unique original voice, and it's not something that is like a voice that can't be replicated. Like it's not another. It's not like a, a director that has mass appeal or like maybe like Michael Bay or Zack Snyder. It's like a, a tour means like very specific talent and a vision and style. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And all three of these directors, from Peel, Eggers, and Oster, they all have that same element. And yeah, that's what elevates this film because of that style, because of his voice. And um, yeah, that, that's and people respond to that. People respond to, oh wow, I've never seen this before. They get intrigued by it, and then they're like, I want to see the next film this guy does, and then that becomes a domino effect, right? And so that just adds on to his success in a good way. Does. You think about it. Mm, does yeah, and really another aspect you shared with all of these other two, with Eggers and Peel, is that the horror genre in a long, long time has suffering from very stale, cliche, and mediocre years where mostly just bad sequels and remakes. But the second half of the 2010s was when the horror genre really brought their A-game. And both Hereditary and Midsummer. I think it's safe to say this is the horror genre, modern horror genre, at the top of its game with very original concepts and themes that are not just evocative or scary, but just meaningful to us. They succeed not just as great horror films, but just films, period. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, all like I said in the Jordan Peele episode, you have all these great auteur directors. You have Jennifer Kent, you have... Uh, Ari Aster, Peel, Eggers, um, all these great auteur directors, and you look at their films, and it's like, and it's it's amazing, it's it's almost a miracle because, I mean, the horror genre is just flooded with cliches. I mean, just complete. It's a horror genre that's been done so many times before. I mean, I think everybody, even if you're a casual moviegoer, you know, like all the cliches. Right. Oh yeah, this happens. Blah 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 blah. And so they're able. The fact that they're able to, to subvert all that and have an original voice, and it be, and it's a good film. That's incredible. I mean, that's just wow. That's that's insane. <laughs> well said. Well said, Emmanuel. Yeah, and yeah. Well, I love I love Robert Eggers and Jordan Beale, but personally, I have to say Ari Aster is probably my favorite of the trio because his films. While I found them the other two, four, you know, Witch, Lighthouse, Get Out, and Us to be scary, Hereditary and Midsummer, these films, they tapped me out. They disturbed me. They really succeeded in what they did. They gave me nightmares, sleepless nights. Sometimes when I sleep, I, I sometimes get this feeling. I get scared that some, somehow someone's standing there in the, in the corner, crawled up. Like, these movies just fucked me over and because of that I have to respect them yeah yeah I, I prefer Eggers because Eggers he deals more with symbolism and you know he's the big fan of Carl Jung and I am as too and I am as well and but his particular films the fears and the topics topics he touches that hits me more like first film was like you know puritans and, and devil and all that stuff that hits me as a religious person then the second film lighthouse that was more about masculinity and like uh you know this whole forming your identity and like dealing with the circumstances of being stranded and isolated so and that's a big fear of mine being isolated and being alone 
with somebody that you don't really like too right so so i guess those movies spoke to me more than aster uh but yeah i can see definitely see how aster is your favorite too because yeah they're still they're both talented in their own right and peel as well yeah yeah they're all great filmmakers right and also it it really amazes me how Aster he's young he's in his early 30s and he managed to pull off two of the last decade's best horror films the same for Robert Eggers who he himself is young too in his 30s and while Peel may be the uh, older of the three he is nonetheless he made two game-changing horror films and which is really a success for someone who is best known for doing comedy sketches and SNL episodes, which what we can learn from all these three is that doesn't matter what your strength is or where you start from, but anyone can make a movie. Yeah, anyone can make a good movie. I mean, Peel, like, Peel was completely out the blue. I mean, this guy, you know him from comedy, and then he starts making these horror films and they're actually like really good and it's like where did this come from and i think the same thing with aster i think tony collette was like because aster i mean tony collette she knows aster of course and they know they know each other personally and aster's like this really nice guy and she was like how did how did he make this film how did this scary movie come out of this guy (laughs) you know so that's that's incredible like anybody don't don't judge a book by its cover. I mean, mm-hmm. these people they seem like oh the, you have them figured out and then they do make this film and they're like well, how did they do this? <laughs> right, exactly. And also from all of these six films, they've shown that like all of them, what you really need is great directing, writing, acting, and a really good heart and passion in what you put, because in all six of the big, the new three masters of horror, there is not a single jump scare to be found in any of them, and they're twice, if not tenfold, effective. Exactly. And it's not, that's a good horror, that's the future of horror, because like I said, it's a genre that's people have done like all the tropes all the jump scares everything and so and if you look at all these these the peel i'm sure jennifer can as well but also peel oster and uh eggers they're all students of film and so they they obviously they know all the cliches all the tropes and so they're able to to subvert that and still make good stories and that's why i like that's why it's a miracle that they're around because the future of horror is in good hands mm-hmm. with those people because finally we're able to get some new original stuff from this genre you know which is which is very good right totally agree yeah and also i'm really looking forward to aster's next film which is titled disappointment boulevard which as far as we know it's a four-hour black comedy with Joaquin Phoenix as the lead. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I was just looking up the cast list, and I think Parker Posey's going to be in it, and uh, Stan, St- uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, it's got some good actors there. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. I believe it's being, isn't it being distributed by Netflix? or? Oh, is it? Nice. No, no, I think it's A24. I think A24 is distributing it. 
yeah, I think A24 is still distributing it. But yeah, four hours is long, so I hope mm-hmm. I hope people can stomach that. Don't don't worry, Manuel. <laughs> After watching Zack Snyder's Justice League, I'm more than comfortable with four-hour feature films. Me too, but we gotta wait and see if mass audiences uh, have the appeal as well. Right, of course. Uh, but I have a feeling it's gonna be good. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Because Astor's films, they may not be for everybody, but he just makes them so damn well. Like most horror films are supposed to scare you. Hereditary and Midsummer, nope, they won't scare you. They will disturb. They will emotionally bludgeon you. Yeah, and that's what Astor was going for. He wanted to make films that. You know that stay with you because because like you know the jump scares are all good they were good you know and but you can still move on from that oh i got scared but you know i'm re-energized or you know my experience is over but if you have something that stays with you like all this dread and this imagery and the symbolism and what's going on and things like that and these scary ass endings mm-hmm. they're gonna stay with you longer right exactly and that brings up to another point i began to see while I was analyzing more and more horror films in the last few years because when you're a kid it's images and visuals that scare you but as you grow older it's ideas and concepts that are more frightening than that yeah because you know yeah as you grow older you have more time to think about things and everybody has everybody has their own viewpoint worldview how the world should works and how people should work and and like, and when you see a film that kind of disturbs you, that kind of, you know, puts your your, your worldview in in the question, or like, oh wow, this shit. When you're thinking this shouldn't happen, or what the hell's going on, then that starts opening you up to more fear, to more like, oh shit, like, because you start thinking about it and thinking about it, and mm-hmm. that's how that's good filmmaking. Or in, in terms of horror, that's good because that stays you longer. Exactly, yeah, cause, and that's what Aster does with his two films, which I could say for the other two, but for Aster, is that his films tackle with difficult ideas, even with no demons or cults. It also deals with the concept of intergenerational trauma, death of a child, adult fear, domestic abuse, you know, domestic drama, and toxic relationships, and he puts those realistic ideas in a way that disturb us and I think those ideas are far more terrifying than any blood, gore or giant creature I think yeah you know it's just uh, and I think you like this too because I think you discussed this in um, yeah in Robert Eggers episode or another episode you said like the real monsters are the humans right Mm, yes and Astor plays on that a lot you know, I mean, these cult leaders, they're just as, I mean, these cult members, just as scary, if not more scary than any monster, any Frankenstein or mummy character, right? Because mm-hmm. they're people like you or me, you know, and they might be people that, you know, you might, we wouldn't mind being friends with, but then they have this dark uh, underbelly, uh, undercurrent. And that's even more scary when the things that you don't know, the things that, you, you can't see, you know, the unknown. Right, exactly, yes. Right, we fear what we cannot comprehend or understand, for sure, yeah. Right, 
And with all that said, I think, yeah, the future horror, modern horror, is in very, very good hands. And that would be all the time we have left for today's episode, which I believe we've covered plentiful from Ari Aster. Yeah, we did. We did. We covered quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Thank you again, Emmanuel, for showing up. And this has been Sin City, live for CMRU.ca, Feelout Images, and Society of Broadcasting. Thank you. Have a good day, and bye-bye.